passage this morning comes from Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers will walk through the aisle with Bibles, so raise your hand. They will gladly bring you one. I don't have the uh, page number for the reading this morning. However, Revelation is at the very end of the Bible, and we are at the near the end of Revelation, so it's the last couple pages there. We're starting in verse 7 of chapter 20, and we'll be going all the way to chapter 21, verse 8. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plains of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is 
the second death. You may be seated as I pray. Father, we thank you for all the different angles and words and passages that we get in your word. We thank you for the view this morning that we receive. And we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts to help us to understand these words and to apply them to our lives. Would you help us to live in light of them? Would you help us now, Father, to hear from you, hear only what is meant from you? In Jesus' name, amen. What is it about running that gets some people so excited? Hey, let's put on some bright colors, let's wear some tight clothes, and let's go sweat around the neighborhood. Sounds like a great idea, right? Well, sometimes I see runners going after their run, particularly with lots of vigor. And if you look at their face, it looks like they're subjecting themselves to some cruel and unusual punishment. It does not look very enjoyable. So the question has to be asked, why run at all? Well, some people run to stay physically fit and to keep their bodies healthy. Others run for exercise or to get back in shape. And there are some really strange people out there who run simply because they enjoy it. You know who you are. So people push themselves to run because there's a payoff. There's a reward. There's a benefit to it. So whatever the benefit they're looking for, Whatever that is, it helps them endure the pain. It helps them fight against their body that says, let's go back to the couch, enough of this. So each painful step after painful step is endured because they know that it's not in vain. They remember their goal. They remember the results of what happens when they keep running. So that's exactly what our passage is for Christians this morning. John's received the vision of the end times and given it to the early church in order to help them run. He tells them, keep going, look at what will be, look at what's coming, see the reward, the payoff, the benefits, see the warning, the cost, the price of giving up, and keep going. So how does John do that in these verses? Well, he gives us three pictures of what the end will be like. And he says, this is why you must keep running. He says, weary Christian, look ahead. Look here at this picture. Here are your enemies. Or here, look at this picture. Here are your peers. Or finally, here, look, this is you. And look at the fullness of joy you have. John says, see, it's worth it. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't turn away. Keep repenting. Keep running and you will find life. But what are these three pictures? Well, that's our task for this morning. And we're going to go through it in those, those three pictures. That's our text breakup. It's probably the breakup of your Bible. So the first picture is a picture of complete conquest. Chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. Complete conquest, chapters 27 to 10. Our second picture is pervasive judgment. Chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And then our third picture is eternal adoption chapter 21 verses 1 to 8 let's jump in to our first point complete conquest so as we go through the, through these verses we need to remember the nature of this book this book is apocalyptic literature 
So many of you know there's genres of scripture in the Bible, just like you go to the library and you find different types of books in different sections. So the Bible has different types of books and different types of writing in it, and we call those genres. So this is apocalyptic literature. So knowing whether or not you're reading poetry or narrative or prophecy or wisdom literature is of the utmost importance when interpreting and reading the scriptures. For example, should you interpret the Proverbs as clear promises? Well, you'll find yourself quickly confused. Or should you take the gospel narratives as poetry? You'll find yourself aligned with heretical teaching very quickly. So as we approach this book, we must remember these are images, pictures, and symbols of real, literal things. However, the pictures and symbols are not literal all the time themselves. No, they simply depict what something will be like. They tell us about an object or a being or a reality, not necessarily the literal size, shape, or look of it. So our passage starts off this morning with one of the most controversial debates in Christian teaching. So look with me at verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are ended. I know some of you are thinking, here we go. No, we're not going to talk about the millennium. The thousand years here refer to the passage before, chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Uh, it's the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's a debate on the timing and what this, this picture of the reign of Christ will look like. But thankfully, that's not our passage for us this morning. So it's sufficient for us to know that what we find in our passage is after the thousand years. That is to say, no matter your eschatological view, this is the end result. This will be the end result of Christ's gospel. So I have no interest in hinting about or defending a specific view. So let's consider these three pictures unhindered from the controversy of the verses before. So what then is this first picture that John has for us? Well, John introduces the first character in our text. It's Satan. So Julia, one of the summer workers, uh, asked the obvious question, why in the world did they let Satan out of prison? It's a good question. We, see, we don't necessarily know what Satan's imprisonment looks like and what it really was, but we know why he comes out. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, he comes out to deceive the nations. Friends, we must be aware that the very goal of the devil is to deceive. He deceived Adam and Eve. He's deceived each of us at various times into falling into sin and turning away from God. So here again we see Satan sets out to deceive. And he's not just after one corner of the globe. No, he is after the whole world, all four corners. The text mentions Gog and Magog, a reference to Israel's enemies in Ezekiel's chapter 38 and 39. This language, again, isn't literal. So here, the use of Gog and Magog is to tie us back to that prophecy, but even more, it's to symbolize the nations that are opposed to God. In the time of John's writing, the, these, this phrase was used to allude to the nations in Psalm 2 that would rage against God and his anointed king. So verse 8 ends with Gog, Magog, Satan, all of God's enemies gathered together. And look at the language that's used. Their number is like the sand of the seashore. Friends, God is opposed now and he will be opposed in the end by numbers that are unimaginable to us, uncountable, unfathomable to us. So the stage is set. 
and verse 9, the armies of Satan march up to the camp of the saints. Imagine for a minute how this might unfold. Billions of people and evil spiritual forces all gathered surrounding the people of God, surrounding the city of God. Some of the saints feel defeat before the battle even begins. Others quake at the sound of the army. Others get ready to fight for God. And yet what happens? Look at verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Wait, that's it? Just like that, John, it's over. They're gone. The battle's finished before it even began. This is like sitting down to, to watch a movie, an epic movie in the theaters. You've seen all the movies leading up to this final movie. You're waiting for all your questions to be answered. You want the drama to unfold. And so you sit down, you put your hand in your popcorn. The movie's about to begin. But before you get the popcorn on your mouth, it's over. It's done. The climax is gone. What happened to the movie? What happened to the fight? This is or like a scene that I, I like particularly a lot in Ant-Man and the Wasp, for those who have seen that movie. Ant-Man and Wasp, they can shrink to insect size. So they're fighting on a kid's train table. You can picture them fighting on top of the trains, throwing trains at one another. And then the Wasp gets knocked off. He's on the tracks. He's about to get hit by Thomas the train engine and be crushed. But what happens? It's a little plastic toy, so it just falls off the track. And it's, de and it's derailed. So you, you're expecting the end of the fight, and yet you're let down. The climax of the fight is gone. So what's John doing? Why is he showing us this picture? He's building up the suspense just to take the air out of our wings. Well, I think John's showing us the immense power of God over Satan. Jonathan Edwards says it like this, There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand, and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. Friends, our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. No foe can stand against him. No army can approach him. No enemy can defeat him. Victory always has and always will belong to our God. Christian, behold the enemy of your soul. Chaff before our God, the consuming fire. Who shall we fear when God is on our side? the camp of the saints the beloved city stands secure against any threat against any number of enemies because the omnipotent power of god protects her friends the, the final defeat of satan is profoundly good news for weary christians not only that i think there's another reason this battle is so anticlimactic this battle was already finished when our king rose from the dead colossians puts it this way and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Friends, the gospel is good news, not just because your sins have been forgiven, not just because your debt has been paid for, but because you've been brought from death to life. 
It's also good news because through Jesus' death and resurrection, the enemies of God have once and for all been stamped out. They've been put to open shame. Jesus has triumphed over them and disarmed them. Christians, there is no force, no power, no being that can stand between you and your God. Jesus has conquered all forces of evil through his death and resurrection. So we may feel the pains of their presence. We may see the effects of their deception. We may watch as the world gathers to oppose Christ. But let us not lose heart. Our King has conquered and He will conquer fully and finally in the end. And look where Jesus sends the enemy of our souls. Verse 10 tells us the devil is thrown into the lake of fire, joining the beast and the false prophet, where all three will be tormented day and night. The beast and false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire back in chapter 19 at the end. So from the lake of fire, there's no rescue. There's no escape. Only eternal torment for those thrown in. This first picture shows us the victorious power of God and the final defeat of Satan. In John's second picture, we watch as more people are thrown into that same lake of fire. So look with me at verses 11 to 15, our second point pervasive judgment John sets us before God himself on the great white throne the white here symbolizes the purity of God there is no stain of sin on this throne his power and authority are felt as sky and earth flee his presence and all that remains in this picture are the dead standing before God then books are brought forward opened and examined you can imagine with me, an angel takes a book and says, Here are the works, the deeds of the saints in Canada in 2021. Here are their sins. Here are their fallings. Here is where they compromised. And here they lied. Here they gossiped. Here the, here's the chapter where they hated one another. Here they were immoral. Friends, the books of God contain the works of all humanity, great and small, old and young. And they will be weighed out against the perfect commands of God's law. We certainly believe in a gospel that is not works-based. But here we encounter a judgment that is works-based. It says that they will be judged by what they had done. So both verse 12 and 13 mention that. And yet there remains another book. Verse 12 tells us that this other book was the book of life. So as they go through the book of life, name by name, works by works, anyone whose name was written in that book was freed from the judgment of God. But woe to the one whose name was not in the book of life. They were thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, behold the pervasive judgment of God. Imagine the feeling of all your sins uncovered before God and being judged for them. You can imagine a teenager caught lying from his parents and the, the guilt, the shame, the way he would feel or an employee caught stealing at work, the weight of that emotions. And yet this is on a far greater scale. Or imagine David when Samuel, God's prophet, approached him and he told him a story about a wicked man. And David says that man deserves punishment. And Samuel tells him, you are the man. 
In that moment, David's sin was uncovered. His heart was laid bare. He could not run. He could not hide. He was confronted with the sinfulness of his actions, and he had to deal with the consequences. Friends, let each of us be sure that our names are in the book of life. Lest we get to the end and find out that we will be judged according to our works. We simply cannot earn our way into heaven. We cannot stand before the judgment of God, but we can find solace in the book of life. So the letter to the church in Sardis, back in Revelation chapter 3, warns the church to wake up, remember the gospel, repent of their sins, and walk with Christ. And as a result, Jesus tells them, I will never blot out your names of the book of life. So friends, the judgment of God is fierce. It is pervasive, and there is only one way to be freed from it. You must turn to the Lamb, repent of your sins, and follow Christ in faith. So just as we saw God's omnipotence in our first point, here we see God's omniscience. He is all-knowing. There's no hiding place from the gaze of our God. There's no work, no sin, no deed that He is not aware of. So friends, let us not take sin lightly. Let us not think God doesn't see or he doesn't know or he doesn't care. He knows and he beckons us. Repent, return to me and find life. So the passage mentions death and Hades as a holding place for the dead. And all of the dead are given up. And the judgment of God is completely comprehensive. All are judged by their works and receive the subsequent consequences. Death and Hades, as well as those whose names are not in the book of life, are all thrown into the lake of fire. And John mentions this is the second death. That is to say, this is it. The final place, the eternal home of all who do not embrace Christ. The lake of fire. Remember, this isn't a literal lake of fire. No, it's a place that can be best described as a lake of fire. A place of continual torment and unrest. An eternal burning. This is the end of sin. One author puts it like this. In short, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. We may go on and say it is the rebuke of his providence, the scoff of his promise, the reproach of his wisdom. And as is said of the man of sin, it opposes and exalts itself against God himself. So sin is no small thing. It only leads to death. So let us treat it with a holy fear. How have you talked about sin this week? Have you treated it as vile, as evil, as dangerous? Or has we, have we turned sin into a household pet to be played with and tamed? And if our families are... are co-workers or our friends or our neighbors knew the eternal consequences of their sins would they continue in them maybe we ought to be quicker to tell them about the judgment that's coming and the way to be saved from it death hades and all who aren't in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire the enemy has indeed been vanquished and now the world has been cleansed The good news of the gospel includes the eradication of all sin and all who are in sin. And this is profoundly good news. This is the only way that we can make it 
or that we can make it to our third point and the final purpose of the gospel. We simply cannot dwell with God if stains of sin remain. No, we must be made white like He is through the work of His Son that we might be able to dwell with Him forever. So God frees us in the world from the power and presence of sin forever. Death is vanquished as there will no longer be sin, so the curse from Genesis 3 is finally reversed through the judgment of God. But how does this second point help us run? Well, just like a sign on a path that says there's rocks up ahead, falling rocks up ahead, or steep cliffs to the side, or there's bears here from May to October, this second point warns us of the dangers of leaving the path. It calls us to hold fast to the Lamb and to treat sin as costly. It reminds us that sin may entice us. The stench of eternal fires always lingers close behind. So may we be vigilant, vigilant to keep running and call others to run with us. So we've seen the enemies of God conquered. We've seen evildoers punished. But what about those whose name is in the book of life? What will they receive? Well, that's where John goes with our third picture, eternal adoption. This is chapter one or chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. So here John introduces the new heavens and the new earth as the old one passed away. He sees Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride, and there's a proclamation made from the throne of God. One of my favorite parts of a wedding ceremony is a proclamation of the couple. They've been dating, engaged, planning the wedding. They've been working on everything, getting everything ready. And then they're going through the ceremony. And finally, here it is. They're announced husband and wife. So imagine how much more the anticipation for this moment will be. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He created the world. He walked with his people. But for thousands of years since, sin has kept God from dwelling with his people. God worked through patriarchs, prophets, priests, all to try and dwell with his people. Yet sin plagued every relationship between God and man. And then Christ comes. And he obeys God and he dies for our sins. And he pays the price, saving all who would come to him. So now the outcome is secure. But here we are, the already not yet. Saved, but yet still stained by sin. Restored, and yet still in need of repenting. Redeemed, and yet returning to our sinful ways. But finally, in Revelations chapter 21, we've made it. Friends, the climactic call from the throne of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, the gospel is good news because we get to be with God. The presence of God, where fullness of joy is, we get to experience unabated. Behold the end of the gospel, not the conclusion of it, but the final accomplishment of it. John Piper says it like this, The highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. The saving love of God is God's commitment to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. Friends, the goal of the gospel is God 
himself. And look at what happens when we dwell with God in verse 4. God will wipe away every tear. Death will be gone forever. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. The place your soul most earnestly longs for is not here right now. It's not on this world. It is the presence of God. So you can try and satisfy your soul with samplings of the world, but they will only fall short. You will keep craving until you turn to the presence of God where all your trials will end and you will know everlasting joy on that day. The eternal kingdom of God is completely and utterly new. Verse 4 ends us telling us the former things have passed away. And verse 5 gives us the very words of God. I am making all things new. God goes on to say, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ends. And the end. Friend, the end of the gospel is an eternal dwelling place with God that cannot be thwarted. And Yahweh himself has said, it is done. So take heart, Christian. You will find eternal joy and rest with God. So our passage ends with two contrasting lives and two contrasting rewards. The first option is to come drink from the water of life without payment. All are invited to come and receive the forgiveness of their sins and receive eternal life with God. All you have to do is come to Him. And yet verse 8 warns us, Anyone who embraces sin will end up in that same lake of fire. A close examination of this list will undoubtedly show that each of us fit into it somewhere. So the reality, the reality is if we, are given to our, if we are given to our sins in a way that shows that our heart isn't united to Christ and his purposes, then we belong on such a list. But before you go doubting your salvation, let me remind you that this free offering of the water of life is to all who have embraced Christ, which most of you already have. So your sins now as a believer are indeed grievous before God, but they will not separate you from God. So keep repenting, keep returning to him, and you will be forgiven. Your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Friends, the glories of eternity are wondrous, but so the dangers of sin are treacherous. We must hear these warnings from John and patiently endure all things, holding fast to the message of the gospel and the hope of eternal adoption into God's family. God didn't create you, send Jesus to die for you simply because he felt bad for you. No, he did all that because he loves you with a steadfast, immovable, unshakable love. Friends, God's will is not for you to come and live with Him, but stay at a distance. God isn't interested in a long-distance relationship. No, He wants sweet union, sweet communion with His people. So look at the language in these verses. Jerusalem is prepared as a bride for her groom. Or verse 7, the one who conquers will be his son. The good news of the gospel isn't just saved from sin. No, it's saved from sin and saved unto God himself. Christian, you must keep up the faith. Continue running because at the end comes eternal, joyful delight in perfect union with God. So the third picture John presents us with is one of eternal bliss. 
secured by the Alpha and the Omega, completely finished and final, full of glorious unity and with God and free from sin and all of its bitter fruit. This picture would not be possible without the first two pictures we had. Satan defeated, death, Hades, all evildoers punished. God is finally well with his people again. So now that we've seen these three pictures, let me close with three quick words of application. From the first picture, do not fear the enemies of God. Remember, God is all-powerful. From the second picture, ensure your name is in the book of life by holding fast to the gospel. Remember, God is all-knowing. Eternal, and from the third picture, eternal joy and rest away. So don't give up. So the question remains, how then shall we endure persecution, pain, suffering, and trials? It's by looking at what Christ has secured through the gospel, the full and final defeat of evil, and the eternal enjoyment of the very presence of God. That's what we need to help us run. Let's pray to close. Father, we thank you for these pictures of the eternal realities that await. We ask that you would keep them on the forefront of our minds, that you would lift our eyes from the things of this life and the things of this world and fill us with hope and joyful anticipation of the eternal blessing that awaits all who are in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.